Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you got your Bibles, hopefully, hopefully you're there. Acts, Acts 17. Uh, in just a moment, we'll we'll pick it back up in, in verse uh, verse 16. Uh, I, I have I have two uh, I have two uh, relics uh, of of emptiness this morning. <laughs> I have two relics of emptiness. Sort of a uh, sort of a nod to the the idols and uh, ideas that I've I've chased uh, in years past. The the first is, uh, is my, my uh, basketball MVP trophy uh, from 1997-98, uh, okay? Uh, literally like the pinnacle of my sports career. It went, it went downhill after that. Uh, and, and literally, this bad boy uh, has, has collected dust uh, at the top of my closet for, for uh, over, over two decades, and yet... I devoted so many years uh, chasing the idol, uh, the idol of sports. Um, the uh, the second the, the, the second idol uh, is is my. Uh, it also has some dust on it from my office. Uh, is is my uh, DTS degree? I was I was halfway through uh, Dallas Theological Seminary uh, before uh, my my 4.0 was broken. Uh, which at the time was a, a devastating blow to my pride and my ego, uh, uh, because apparently, uh, at least early on, my, my seminary goal uh, was to have perfect grades. Uh, not, not to grow in my love for Jesus, not, not to prepare me to be a, a faithful uh, gospel minister, but apparently to, to, to keep that, rocking that 4-0. Empty idols and ideas. See the, the streets, the streets of Bryan and College Station are are aren't lined uh, with with statues of our idols, but our idols are all around us. Amen. Our idols, we we bow the knee to we bow the, the knee to our idols of materialism and achievements and relationships and and reputation and fame and uh, keeping up appearances and we are our idols of acceptance and, and and so so many more and we we cling we cling to these ideologies and, and, and all, of, all of our isms, right? We've got all of our ideologies, all of our isms. And as we said last week, we allow, we allow them to drive our worldview instead of filtering these ideas through a biblical worldview. And we, and we cling to what is empty. And even though the the longing, there's this longing of our soul that goes unsatisfied and we keep up the pursuit like maybe, maybe it'll be the next thing that does it, right? 
Maybe the next thing, that's what's going to satisfy. And I would just say, as we dive into our text this morning, Christian, what about you? What about, what about you? What, what idols are you chasing right now that if you really hold them up to the light of God's Word and His calling on your life, man, like you know they're empty. You know they're empty. And what, what ideas... What ideas are you, are you filling your mind with right now? You're allowing to fill your mind and your heart that they're, they're, they're just producing more worry, more, more fear, more, more anger, more apathy, or maybe even more pride. And, and so this morning, we examine uh, the first part of Paul's layover in Athens. And what we're going to see, and we're going to talk about it more next week, is this idea that only Jesus is the cure for empty idols and ideas. Amen? Amen. Only Jesus is the cure for all of our empty idols and ideas. And so if you got your your copies of God's Word, I want to read verse 16 and share our, our, uh, our, our first point this morning. Verse 16, it says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. First point that, that, that I want to look at this morning is the futility of idolatry. The futility of idolatry. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, the futility of idolatry. <laughs> we were kind of in sync. I think we can do better. Look at your other neighbor tell him, the futility of idol- idolatry. <laughs> and I didn't help it. Verse 16, verse 16 picks up with Paul and he's, he's 200 miles from Berea, right? We left off and he was in Berea. Uh, he's 200 miles from Berea in Athens and he's, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to, to get there. And though, though Athens had, had, had sort of reached the peak of its glory as a city in, in the 5th century B.C., hundreds of years before, it was still a, a city that was renowned renowned for its politics and its culture and its religion and its philosophy. And at the time, Athens, it's crazy to think about, Athens at the time had dwindled in size to a population of about ten to 12,000 people. Far, far smaller than uh, the, the thriving metropolis of, of Greek Corinth. So, so he's, he's there in Athens, and uh, they, they had been subjugated to Roman rule. So the, the Romans had come in, and they had taken over the city in 146 B.C. They were under Roman rule, but uh, unlike many other spots in the Roman Empire, they were given a relatively large amount of autonomy and, and, and freedom as a free city uh, under Rome's watchful eye. But Paul... We're going to see very quickly in verse 16, Paul's not there uh, on just a, a, a sightseeing adventure, even though Athens was a sight to behold. Beyond the, beyond the art, beyond all the other things that people within the city and coming from outside would have been enamored with, beyond the art, beyond the buildings, beyond the, the scenic uh, Grecian surroundings, our text tells us, if you look at verse 16, our text tells us that what really characterized the city was its multitude of idols. It's multitude of idols. In fact, it was said in antiquity that it was easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main streets of Athens than to meet a man. 
And the irony, the irony of that is, is it was actually statistically true because there was about 30,000 statues of gods. And so three to one that you'd run into an idol over a person. And so Paul, far from, far from being enamored by the, the massive, this massive number of all these ornate idols, he, he, he was stirred up, but not, not with wonder, right? not, not with worship, but he was stirred up in a different way. The text tells us his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked within him. Provoked in the Greek is this word paroxymo, and in the sense is to become incited, to, to be stirred up in one's emotions and feelings and reactions. Derek Thomas says this, he says, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in use in Paul's day, the word was, the word was deployed to express God's anger at the idolatry of his people. And so this righteous indignation was being stirred up in Paul's heart that day. He, he was jealous, but, but not like in this like weird possessive boyfriend kind of way, uh, but in the most godly and compassionate sense. He was troubled that, church family, that the Athenians would worship and look for life in all of these lifeless man-made objects. My, my. And Kent Hughes says this, every idol demonstrated the Athenians' hunger for God, but it also testified to their spiritual emptiness. Church, Paul, Paul found himself surrounded by a culture of idolatry, wholly dedicated to idol worship. But instead of driving despair in Paul, it, 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 it drove more gospel determination. Amen. He was, seeing a, he was seeing this great problem, but he knew that the solution to the problem was Jesus. Amen? See, Isaiah, centuries earlier, had observed this in Israel. Hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah, Isaiah said this in Isaiah 44, 14 through 17. He said, one person, he cuts down cedars, or, or he chooses a cypress tree or an, or an oak. And he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he, and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. And over, over, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God, his idols, and he falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. Church, like we, we hear that and we think like, how, like, how ridiculous. Right? Like you, you read that, like I, I often think about the story of Israel uh, while Moses is up the mountain and Aaron fashions out of all their jewelry, the golden calf, calf and we, we just think like, like, how does this happen? Like, how silly and how ridiculous is this? How, how silly is this story that from Isaiah where, where they, they take the wood and half they burn and half they worship, and yet the, the diploma on your wall is made from the same paper that we burn through daily. And yet we idolize our, our grades and our degrees. And that, 
That, that car is made of plastic and metal, and, and one day will be in a junkyard, or it'll be, it'll be obsolete, and yet you look for status in what you drive. And that, that, achievement, that, that, that achievement that may have absolutely nothing to do, nothing to do with what God defines as success in the scheme of eternity, but by God, you're going you're gonna to cling to it like it's still going to matter in the kingdom. Or that bank account that, that's growing, but it can't buy your peace, or it can't buy contentment, or it can't make your relationships right. No, our, our idols, they're not, they're not necessarily the statue variety, but America is no stranger to idols, amen? And many of us, for many of us, the idols in our hearts far outnumber the idols on that Athenian street corner. Tony Morita, he reminds us, he says this, an idol is anything to which we turn when we need something only Jesus can provide. Idols aren't just statues worshipped as, as shrines. They are substitute gods, Morita says. And he says they are functional saviors that supplant the true and living God in the human heart. So I would just say, here, here's the application, right? Christian, what, what idols are lurking in your heart right now? What idols are lurking in your heart right now? And what are you willing to do to root them out and put them to death, Christian? See, we, we, proclaim, we proclaim that Jesus is better on Sunday, and then we spend the rest of the week chasing what we really think is better. And church, we've got to come back to the truth that, that our, our idols, our idols are empty. Second thing this morning as we look at verse 17 and 18, it says this, so he reasoned in the synagogue, familiar scene with Paul, with the Jews and, he, and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The second thing we see this morning is the futility of pride. We see the futility of uh, sorry, of pleasure and pride. The futility of pleasure and pride. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell them, pleasure and pride. Look at your other neighbor tell them, pleasure and pride. And we'll, we'll unpack that in a second. In verse 17, we see Paul operating in his normal pattern of reasoning in the synagogue, but we also see this as he's giving further and further away from Jerusalem. He, uh, because again, Acts 1.8, remember, Acts 1.8 is unfolding. The mission and movement of God is unfolding from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So we see a shift where now he's not only in the synagogue, but he's also in the marketplace. In the Greek, it's this word agora. The marketplace is agora. In, in Greek and Roman times, uh, David Peterson says the marketplace was the hub of urban life. It was a center for commerce and trade, but it, it was also a center, became a center for sharing and exchanging ideas. In the summer of, of 
2001, I remember when our, our mission trip team, as, as, we, as we set up shop in one of the most busy market, downtown squares, marketplaces in Kiev, Ukraine, we, we did some open air worship uh, with, with music and with preaching, but because there were, there were vendors all around us, there were all of these folks who were set up shop peddling their, their wares uh, out in the market. People were milling around, and so we were able to have a lot of conversations around and about the gospel. And though we, we didn't run into, per se, the, uh, the Epicureans or the Stoics that I know of, uh, we did encounter firsthand many who were walking in hopelessness and meaninglessness there in that Ukrainian market. And it was heartbreaking to watch folks reject the, the good news of the gospel because they were unable, either unable or unwilling to, to let go of the idols and the ideas that kept them in these cycles of futility and faithlessness. And so, so F.F. Bruce, he says it like this, the Epicureans, they presented pleasure, pleasure as being the chief end of life. The pleasure most worth enjoying, uh, Bruce says, being a life of tranquility, free of pain, free of disturbing passions and superstitious fears, including the fear of death. Another commentator says this about the Epicureans. They, they held to the existence of the gods, but they thought that the gods were completely detached from humanity. I guess kind of, kind of like a, a functional deists. And he said it would be misleading to call them hedonists in the modern sense. Their concept of pleasure involved avoidance of disturbances in life rather than crass, crass self-indulgence. Church, fill, fill in the blanks. Right, Fill in the blanks when it comes to these Epicureans. For a group of functional deists and materialists who, who live for the here and now, they just, they just live to experience pleasure, can you imagine their reaction to the teaching that God, the one true God of the universe, came, revealed Himself of him as a man, and laid His life down and sacrificed and suffered for people? Didn't jive with the Epicurean philosophy of pleasure. The Stoics, Bruce says this, the F.F. Bruce says, the Stoics aimed at living consistently with nature. And in practice, they laid great emphasis on the primacy of the rational faculty or reason, reason in humanity on individual and self-sufficiency sound familiar in theology they were pantheistic so they they saw God the Stoics saw God in everything but both of these groups Epicurean and Stoic they mocked Paul they called him a babbler literally in the Greek it's seed picker right and so the idea is the sense was that like a like a bird pecking seed Paul was just randomly grasping uh, it's it scraps of teaching and, and truth and trying to peddle them off as his own. They said, man, who is this guy? Who is this babbler? Who is this babbler? And so here, here, here's some application on this. You got two groups. You got one group that said, hey, if it feels good, pursue it. Follow your heart, which is essentially the theme of like every Disney movie imaginable. FYI, it's also the theme song of Satan who knows full well 
who knows full well that the unredeemed heart is still enslaved to sin. We make a God of our pleasure and then we wonder why we still feel empty. And it's because the Bible says, listen, the Bible says that your heart was hardwired for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 Your heart, your heart was made for Jesus and I'm not saying I'm not saying that you need to rebuke the Chick-fil-A employee every time they repeat, repeat my pleasure. OK, like don't rebuke them in Jesus name. Just know that your pleasure shouldn't just get a free pass. Apart from God and what God has revealed in his word and what is right and true and good through his word, often our pleasure just leads to more futility and more frustration and more emptiness. And then the Stoics, the other group, they, they, they said this, they said, your, your finite, limited, sin-shaped mind is the final judge and arbiter of truth. You've got this, right? They said, yeah, you're, you're fine. You're self-sufficient. Right? Yeah, they would be around today saying, like, you do not need this crutch of Christianity. After all, you're above all that. Just, just follow your reason. Just follow your logic. And, and then we wonder, we wonder why when we, when we apply this to our lives, why even though puffed up with all this intellectual pride, you still have no peace. You wonder why your mind is still in turmoil. Have you considered if you if you fall on that spectrum of stoicism and pride, have you considered that it might be because there is an uh, an omniscient an infinite and sovereign mind that is above your own? The call to see the call is to see through the emptiness of of worldly pleasure and and pride. And it's. The call is to press in to the glory of Jesus, the only one who can satisfy your soul. Third thing is this, as we look at 19 through 21. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our, our ears and we... We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians, verse 21 says, and, and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the third point this morning is, is we got we to come to grips with the futility of the quest for the new. The futility of the, the quest for the new. Right? I want you to look at your, your neighbor and, and tell him, quest for the new. Look at your other neighbor, tell him, quest for the new. See, the, the scene shifts here to, to the Areopagus uh, or, or Mars Hill. It was a high place, a hill that was devoted to the worship of the Greek god Ares. And we're not sure if Paul was like brought here by coercion, by force, or if the trip to the Areopagus was more, more casual and voluntary. What we do find is that the Athenians were obsessed they were obsessed with everything novel, right? They were obsessed with the new. In the Greek, it's this word kainos. And, and verse 21 reveals that their culture was devoted to spending their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This, this was the city of Aristotle. This was the city of, of Plato and Socrates. Or, or if you're from the 80s and you watch Bill and Ted, Socrates. 
Uh, and so many other great philosophers and, and, and thinkers had, had lined the, the, the streets of, of Athens in years before. And here's the reality. The Athenians placed a, a premium, a premium on hearing and discussing the newest and latest idea or ideology. But what they desperately needed was new life. They needed new life. Just like Athenian culture, church, like nothing, nothing has changed. American culture, like we still, we still get geeked out about the latest like novel ideas and ideology. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Often it doesn't matter if these ideas are like absolute, like bat poop crazy with no historical backing. Uh, like forget if these same ideas and ideologies have historically failed time and time again. Like, oh, it's, it's, re, it's repackaged now. Like, hey, we used some new words. Hey, look at this. We put a bow on it. Ooh, did you see the bow? No, that's... That's just garbage with a bow on it. <laughs> you see this in the church. You see this in the church too. The author, the author who declares that they're the first to grasp what Jesus really meant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> or they, they really understand what Paul they're the first to understand what Paul was trying to say. Like, we've missed it all this time. We've missed it. And we hear this even with the gospel. There are those, there are those in the church who are literally saying, like, the gospel is not enough. Do we not, do, do we not understand, like, the blasphemy that that is? And, and I get it if we're, we're talking about the, the American gospel that uses Jesus to chase what we really want. But if we're talking about the biblical gospel of Christ crucified and raised for sin, His righteousness in our place, that's blasphemy. But they're saying the gospel is not enough. You, you need to add this to the work of Jesus. Here, here's a new way to understand the gospel. Man, God help us. Tony Evans says this, he reminds us some things never change. Tony Evans says there, there's always people who love to debate theology and spirituality, but who are never willing to commit. They like to know about new, they like to know about new religious uh, and philosophical ideas, but God wants us to know him. God wants us to know him and be in right relationship with him as a as a kid, I read that quote by, by Dr. Evans this week, and as a kid, my mind was transported back, back to the 80s, uh, sitting in the red brick church building, the, the long wooden pews, and in the familiar uh, tune of hymns reverberating the walls of uh, my parents' home church, my home church, and there, the little Second Baptist Church in Angleton. And one of the hymns that we would sing on the regular, we would sing, uh, Victory in Jesus. In the first verse, I remember it, it, it because it, it, in light of our text, it, like this needs to grab our attention. The first verse we would sing, I heard an old, old story. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. 
How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood atoning. And it says, then I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Victory in Jesus. Church, the gospel is an old, old story. That uniquely alone has the power to impart New life through Jesus alone. Amen. The minute you the minute you amend it, the minute you add to it, the minute you try to soup it up, it ceases to be good news. It becomes something far less. It becomes this man made like plagiarized copy that is tinkered with something that wasn't broken. I'll close. I'll close with this this morning and we're, we're done. I'm I'm by no stretch of the imagination a a fine arts buff. (laughs) But but years ago, uh, Steph and I had the opportunity to see some of of Van Gogh's paintings as they were on tour and they they made their way to Houston to uh, the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. And of course, uh, Starry Night is is the one that is is probably most reproduced and, and popular uh, but he's known for, for so many more works of art. And yet in his life, Van Gogh, Van Gogh stayed in constant ill health. He, he never, believe it or not, he never made any money, real money off of his art. He was known as a complete failure. He was known as a failure. He was known as a troubled madman until Van Gogh took his own life at the age of 37. And so this, this man who, in our lifetime, we hold up as a world-renowned artist. In his lifetime, he said this, Van Gogh said, I am, I am unable to describe exactly what is the matter with me. Now and then, there are horrible fits of anxiety, apparently without cause, or otherwise a feeling of emptiness and fatigue. See, church, even great artists and celebrities and athletes and billionaires experience the deep desire of the soul that goes unfilled. Even those that have all that this world has to offer. And you, you, say, you say, man, well, what, what gives? What gives? C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis puts it, put it like this. For the Christian, the Christian says... Catch this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. Let me say that again. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Lewis said, well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, well, there is such thing as water. People feel C.S. Lewis says, people feel sexual desire. Well, there is such thing as sexual intimacy. And he goes on, he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Church, 
the cure for our emptiness is the fullness of Jesus Christ. Amen? John 1.16 says this, from His fullness, the fullness of Christ, from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Make the connection. You find fullness in Jesus because it is Jesus who has lavished His grace, His unmerited favor on us. This, this means, though, that there is a direct link between our emptiness and either a misunderstanding of grace or a flat-out rejection of God's grace. But here's the good news. Ready? Grace is still a free gift, amen? It's still available, like, right now. And so if you're, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you are a gift away from conquering the emptiness. The ball, the ball is in your core. Do you believe that Jesus and His free gift of grace is better, is better than all the empty idols and ideas of this world? Y'all pray with me this morning.